Let's go to our good and faithful God and ask Him for His help. And He is always faithful to get it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as has been said today, you are holy and we are not. You are all-powerful and we are weak. You are never in need, but we always are, and so we ask that you would meet us in our need now. We pray that you would come and minister to us by your Spirit as we look to your Word. We pray, quite simply, that you would show us Christ. We pray that we would see Him for who He is. We pray that we would see and know and behold His grace and His power, His mercy and His love. And that in seeing these things and in seeing Him, we would look to nothing else. Come, give us faith. Strengthen and confirm our faith, we pray. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. Amen. It is a significant thing, for sure, when other Christians pray for us. When we get that text message in the morning from a brother or a sister that says something like, praying for you today. It rightly means something to us. It is a significant thing, certainly, when we pray together in a gathering like this. And so, we would also say that certainly it is significant when prayers are recorded in the pages of Scripture. In the letters that the apostles wrote, they do a number of things. They teach and explain doctrine. They encourage, they exhort people to good works and love and godliness. They correct wrong thinking. They correct wrong practice. And they also include prayers. Prayers that they are praying for the recipients of their letters. We should take note of these prayers. They are instructive for us. We've already considered one prayer of Paul for the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 17 and following. And in those verses, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be given a spirit of knowledge and revelation from God, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they might know three things. So that they might know the hope to which they've been called. So that they might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That God delights to inherit His people. And then thirdly, that they would know the greatness of God's power toward them in Christ, who has been given to them as their head, the head of the church. That's a significant prayer. And as we considered that prayer weeks ago, we are going to consider another prayer of the Apostle Paul for the saints in Ephesus today. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking today specifically at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat that at all. We're going to get the verses to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to follow along that way. As you are turning and making your way to Ephesians 3, just a couple of words by way of reminder. Remember that in Ephesians 3, 14, Paul is picking back up where he left off essentially in Ephesians 3 and verse 1. Paul in Ephesians 3, 1 was going to begin a prayer, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he digresses for a moment to talk of 
his ministry that he had been given and to talk of even the plan of God in Christ to save not just Jew, but also Gentile. This is a significant point in the letter. Paul has been heralding the grace of God. He has been heralding the plan of God that has existed for all of eternity to be realized in Christ. He has been proclaiming the purposes of God in the church. He's getting ready, just a paragraph or so later, to transition to how then, in light of all that, the saints are to live together. So in this significant kind of turning point in the letter to the Ephesian Christians, what is Paul going to pray? He could pray anything. Anything. What is it that will be immortalized in the pages of Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Let's look at it together. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. This is the Word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I am almost apologetic for the outline the plan for the sermon that I'm about to give you, because I feel like in my own brain it's sort of, it sounds more complicated than it is, but I'm just going to try to do this, and I'm going to try to be clear about where we're headed. You guys love me, and so we're going to bear with one another today. I plan to survey the text in three points. So we're going to point one, two, three. We're going to survey the text. Then I'm going to make two significant observations for us to consider together. We will then briefly consider some implications of all of that, and then land the plane with a lengthy meditation on the love of Christ. So that's where we're going. And I'm going to try to give you handles and orient you as we make our way through. So first things first, let's survey the text. Let's look at these verses together and consider them under three headings, three points. Number one, in verses 14 and 15, we see the reason for Paul's prayer. Verses 14 and 15, the reason for Paul's prayer. I get that from the first words that Paul pens in verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father. As I've already mentioned, he is picking up where he left off in verse 1. Paul has digressed about his ministry to the Gentiles and the eternal plan of God to save the nations. He has encouraged the Ephesians to not lose heart. And that digression, if anything, has only served to enrich the prayer that he is about to pray. In light of what Paul has written up to this point in the letter, he is going to pray. So when he says, for this reason, I think he is looking back on all of the things that he has penned up to this point. In light of the eternal plan of God, in light of the redemption that is yours in Christ, in light of the fact that God has been exceedingly merciful and gracious to you and has made you alive together with his son. In light of the fact that you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. 
in light of the fact that you who were once strangers and aliens are now being made a part of the household of God in which God himself dwells. In light of all that, I'm going to pray. In verse 15, Paul simply acknowledges the Father's preeminence in the universe, in the world, that every family in heaven and on earth is named from him. That was briefly point one. Now point two of Paul's prayer. In verses 16 to 19, we're going to consider the petitions of Paul's prayer. We've considered the reason. We now will consider the petitions of Paul's prayer. Paul has a flow of thought in verses 16 through 19. I'm going to kind of read slowly through it again. You can keep your eyes in the text and follow along with me as we do that. Paul says that he doesn't cease in one sense. Excuse me, I'm looking the wrong place. He says that according to the riches of the glory of God's grace, that God would grant to you that they might be strengthened in their inner being through His Spirit. So he's praying, God, because He's rich in glory and rich in grace, that He would work in them, in their inner being, through His Spirit, that they might be strengthened. What's the purpose? So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Also, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, in order that they may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ, and that they may know the love of Christ in order that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is building this logical flow of thought. God, I pray that you would strengthen these Ephesian saints. I pray that you would work in them, in their inner man. Work in them by your Spirit. Grant them strength. That Christ might dwell in their hearts by faith. Grant that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Give them strength that they might be able to comprehend, that is, understand, grasp, the love of Christ for them. Give them strength that they might be able to know the love of Christ for them so that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Seems that in the mind of Paul, he understands that God works directly in our hearts and in our spirits by the power of His Holy Spirit. He is praying for that to happen. He's praying for that work to take place. Paul seems to understand that we are desperate always for the Spirit's work and the Spirit's power, that we can't do what he's praying on our own, that God is the one who must give the strength, that God is the one who does the work. He prays these things so that Christ might dwell in each of our hearts, that is, in our inner man by his Spirit. Christ's Spirit lives within the inner man, the regenerate part of a believer. Paul is praying for that reality. He prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love. And I think he clearly means love for one another. All of this so that they might have strength to be able to fully comprehend and understand and grasp the scope and the wonder of the love of Christ for them. And so that they might know. So there's, it's one thing to understand, grasp a concept. It's another thing to know in a very personal way the love of Christ. Paul prays for both. Not only does he pray that they would get the concept, but he prays that they would know it, trust it, rest in it, abide in it, live in it. 
so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Suffice it to say, to be filled with all the fullness of God is substantial sanctification. Amen? To be filled with all the fullness of God is definitely maturity. It is godliness. It is piety, right? To be filled with all the fullness of God is, to use Paul's language from chapter 4 of this letter, to be grown to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now we're going to make some observations about the flow of Paul's thought here and how he thinks that happens in just a moment. We'll come back to that. So we've thought about the reason for Paul's prayer. We've looked at some of the petitions of Paul's prayer. And then now, thirdly, as we're thinking about the text itself, we're going to look at the conclusion of Paul's prayer in verses 20 to 21. These verses, verse 20 and 21, are both benediction, that is a good word, a word of blessing, and they are doxology, a word of praise to God. No, those often go together, right? Benediction, doxology often go together. A good word that is for our comfort, that is for our peace, that is for our joy, evokes what? The praise of God. Paul says his good word. He's prayed some massive things. He's prayed for spiritual power and strength. He's prayed that they would be rooted and grounded in love. He's prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts richly. He's prayed that they would understand the love of Christ for them. He's prayed that they would know the love of Christ for them and that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. The question is, is it going to happen? Is it certain? Will it ever be realized? It's a lofty prayer. The answer is yes these things will happen. How is Paul confident? Because God will see to it. He says so in the text. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work in us. God is powerful. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is merciful. He will do his good work in his children and he will do it by the power of his spirit that is at work within them. But then Paul lands his prayer and concludes it by giving praise and glory to God. To the one who is faithful and merciful and gracious and can do far more than we even ask or think. To him be glory in the church. Amen. To him be glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. For all generations forever and ever. Praise be to his name. The praise of God's glorious grace is the goal of everything that Paul has written in Ephesians 1-3. As we consider here all the time, the plan of the Bible, the great point, the great theme of all of Scripture is God's plan of salvation accomplished through Christ, applied by His Spirit, all to the praise of His glorious grace. And we see that here even in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So friends, let's move now and make a couple of significant observations from verses 16 to 19. That logical flow of thought piece where Paul is making those petitions to God, two significant observations for us to see. Observation one. It seems that in the mind of Paul, at this pivotal point in his letter, the most significant thing he can pray for the Ephesians is that they would fully be able to understand the love of Christ for them, and that they would know the love of Christ for them. Like I said earlier, this apostle could pray anything for these readers, for his audience, anything in the world. And what does he pray for them? 
He prays that they would understand and know the love of Jesus. This is, in the mind of Paul, the most fundamental thing and the most fundamental need that he could pray for, for that need to be met at this point in his letter. Secondly, though, another significant observation is that it also seems in the mind of Paul, understanding and knowing the love of Christ is how the saints are filled with all the fullness of God. You can look at it in your text just like I can. He prays that they would be able to comprehend the love of Christ and that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So in like street-level language, what does that mean for us? That second piece in particular. It means that as we talk together all the time, the way that we will be grown unto maturity in the faith at a most basic fundamental level is to be driven deeper into the love of Christ for us. It is not to discover some new thing. It is not to find some magic bullet, some secret formula that will result in our sanctification. It is not some new discipline that nobody has ever thought of, some new technique, some new program. It's none of that. How will we be grown unto maturity? How will we be filled with all the fullness of God? It is by understanding and knowing the love of Jesus for us. That as we behold Christ for us, we are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3. We are changed from one degree of glory to another as we see Him. As we've thought about those two observations, let's now consider just briefly a few implications meaning things that flow out of the text. The most significant and primary thing for us in the Christian life, as I've already stated, is to see, understand, and know the love of Christ. A few weeks ago, as we were thinking about how the church is built, how Christ is the cornerstone of the church, which means that He not only bears Wait, he also is the stone that orients every other stone in the structure. Just as Jesus, his person, who he is, and his work, what he did, drives everything in the life of the church, so also the love of Christ for us drives everything in our Christian life. The love of Christ for us drives everything in our Christian life. This means a lot for us here at CBC. One thing it means for us is that the work and merit of Jesus is the solid rock on which we stand today, tomorrow, and forever. The work and merit of Jesus is the solid rock upon which the church is built today, tomorrow, and forever. Another thing it means for us is that the lifeblood of the church, the resting heart rate of the church, is the love and sufficiency of Christ for us. Another thing that it means for us is that the way that we will be sustained and grown in the faith is through the Spirit's power at work in us as we together behold and understand and rejoice in the love of Jesus that's showered upon us. It is the Spirit's power that does this, and Christ is the fuel. 
It means for us that we, whether it's from this pulpit or amongst one another, as we spend time together, it means that we should, as much as possible, extol the grace of Christ, the power of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the love of Christ, so that being satisfied in that, we would look to nothing or no one else. So now, for the rest of our time together, in light of Paul's prayer that is quite plain, we're going to consider the love of Christ for us. How might we better understand it? How might we better know it than to think about it from Scripture together? What a great privilege we have. One important reminder in all this, friends, is that in considering the love of Jesus for us, we are also considering the love of God the Father for us. We should never make the mistake that somehow Christ is more tender and merciful than the Father is. If we have, I mean, according to Christ himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. According to the writer of the Hebrews, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So in considering Christ and his love for us, we are also considering the Father's love for us. And as Jesus said, that we read earlier in John 16, the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. So as we consider the love of Christ for us, I'm going to give us three headings. First heading, we can see and know the love of Jesus for us in what he did for us. In what he did for us, quite simply. We could stay here the rest of the afternoon contemplating what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But hopefully in these next few minutes, we can be encouraged in him. Jesus took on human flesh, which we say that all the time. It sounds rote and perfunctory. It's like, yeah, I understand. Like, God became a man. We just celebrated Christmas, bro. I remember the service. You know, we talked about that. But I think sometimes we are inoculated to the wonder and the mystery and the scandalous nature of that statement that God became man. That God the Son left His heavenly throne as the hymn says, emptied himself of all but love, right? He humbled himself by taking on himself a human nature. He exchanged his incomparable, incomprehensible wealth for poverty. He became one of us. He was made like us in every respect, yet without sin. And even though he had no sin, he lived in a world that is racked with it. We've been born into this world. And even though we desire something better, we've never known anything other than this. He left heaven and came to dwell in a wasteland called fallen earth. He did it for us. Jesus knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. Not only did he take on flesh, he lived for 33 years. A perfect life. We've never lived a perfect moment. Perfect day. He lived a perfect life for the entirety of his life. He lived a perfect life of complete obedience to his Father in the face of temptation. As we've said many times, so often our virtue is just an absence of temptation. Christ 
was always virtuous, always righteous, always obedient in the face of the most extreme temptation. He fulfilled all righteousness for our sake. You understand this? That he came and lived this perfect life, obeying his father's every word, not for his own sake, but for ours. Think about his life. For example, his baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need it. He wasn't a sinner. He did it for us. It's just one small example. He did everything that he did for us so that all righteousness might be fulfilled, so that it could be given to us by faith in him. Those are his words. Matthew 3.15. He tells John the Baptist it's appropriate that we do this so that all all righteousness might be fulfilled. He didn't need it. We did. He did it for us. He came to fulfill the law for us in our place. We've already acknowledged today that God is holy and we are not. God has given His law. And God's standard as a holy, righteous, good God is that anyone who would dwell with Him must be perfect, must obey His law in full, must obey it not just in deed, but in thought, in desire, in word. If we break any aspect of God's law, we are guilty of breaking it all. James 2. But Jesus kept his father's every word, every moment of his life. He kept it in thought. He kept it in word. He kept it in deed. This isn't all. Jesus suffered under the justice and judgment of God for us. Think of the anguish that Jesus knew in Gethsemane. The last night of Christ's life, he knew an anguish that we never will know. Like, as bad as our lives may feel at points, as intense as the pain is, as hard as the suffering is, we have never known anguish to the extent that Christ knew it. We have experienced dark nights of the soul, so did Christ. We have experienced times where we are sorrowful to the point of death, so was he. But the difference is that he experienced the dark night of the soul and was sorrowful to the point of death as he was staring down the barrel of God's justice. Staring down the barrel of God's righteous wrath against our sin. And he did that for us. He died a lawbreaker's death. He became a curse. He was hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 27. Though he had never broken his father's law, he died as one who had. Though he knew no sin, he was made to be sin for us. Though in no way did he deserve to do so, he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath, the cup that was reserved for us. Christ in addition to all of this that we've already considered, conquered death and hell for us. He defeated the ancient serpent who is the devil, the great accuser of the brethren, the one who roams about seeking those he may devour. He destroyed him. In doing so, he fulfilled the promise that God had made in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, to the enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman. 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. And on the cross, his heel was certainly bruised. A nail was driven through it. But on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. He did that for you. He was forsaken by God. He faced the full wrath and justice of God. And in that, he endured hell for us. And he was forsaken by God, brothers and sisters, so that you can know that you know that you know that you never will be. On the third day, he rose triumphantly from the grave. His sacrifice vindicated, his enemies defeated, our bodily resurrection secured and guaranteed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, well of joy is mine to drink, for my Lord hath conquered death. Victorious forevermore, the ancient foe is laid to rest. And here's the big thing as we're moving on to another aspect of Christ's love for us. As we conclude our thoughts about what he did for us, everything that he has done, all that he has accomplished, righteousness, holiness, satisfaction for sin, victory over Satan and death and hell, all of that, he gives it to us. He gives it to us. Come, those who have no money, buy food and water without price and without payment. Come and drink of the water of life. It is free. I give it to you. Oh, the riches of the love of Christ for us. Secondly, though, he did all of that. This is important for us to consider. He did all of that that we just described because he and the Father had made that plan before the world began. That's true. It was always the plan that he would do these things in the place of His people to save us. And at the same time, Jesus did those things because He loves us. That matters. He's not just executing a plan. He's not just keeping His marching orders. He's not just honoring His Father, as incredible as those things are. He does those things because He desires that we be saved. He did those things because He loves us. He says himself that he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His hands weren't twisted. He wasn't led kicking and screaming to the cross. He did in His humanity struggle with the plan in His final night. Father, if there's another way, could we do that, please? But He set His face like flint toward Jerusalem and went to the cross for us because He loves us. He knows us. We know Him. He calls us by name. We are His. It's a personal thing. He says in John 15, 9, that as the Father has loved me, 
so have I loved you. Now that's a mind-blowing thought. As the Father has loved me, and we know that the Father's love for the Son is perfect. It's infinite. It's pure. It's holy. It is the definition of great and complete and awesome love that the Father has for the Son. And Jesus says that just as the Father has loved me, that is the way in which I love you. Consider from the pen of the writer to the Hebrews these words. Consider the love and compassion of your Savior for you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Since the children, that's you, that's me, share in these things, Jesus took flesh and blood upon himself. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Anybody in this room afraid of dying? It's real, right? It's the great and final enemy. It does strike fear in our hearts, if we're honest. Jesus knew in his compassion, he knew that we would be afraid of death. And so, he willingly died himself in order to set us free from that fear and that bondage. Thanks be to God for that extravagant, sacrificial love. Amen? For surely, as the writer of the Hebrews goes on, for surely... It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Surely it isn't the angels. He helps the children. Those who, like Abraham, believe in him. That's why he came. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You facing temptation? Maybe you're in a season where it doesn't seem as extreme and you give thanks to God for that. But maybe you're in a season where temptation is on you and it has its claws in you and it won't relent and you find yourself all the time, as Mackenzie said earlier, just crying out, God help me. Jesus was made like us in every respect to make satisfaction for our sins and so that He is able to help us in times of need when we are being tempted. It is not lost on Him. He is gentle and tender and lowly in heart. Cry out to Him in times where you're being tempted and when you're being tried and when you're discouraged. He is near and able to help you. Lastly, we're going to consider now Christ's posture toward us. We've thought about what He's done for us. We've thought about His motivations, right? In that He loves us. But now we're going to consider His posture toward us as we land this plane and thinking about the love of Jesus for us. John 13, 1, the Apostle writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, 
I love these words. He loved them to the end. So too with us. Christ loves us to the end. His love isn't going anywhere. Sometimes in our human relationships, I think we are all haunted by the fear of love going somewhere. Man, relationship's good today, the affection's there today, but will it remain? Will it always be like that? The way that I feel today or the way that this person is loving me today, will that be the case tomorrow or a year from now? With the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that His love will always be the same. That He will faithfully love us to the end. We know that He desires that we be with Him where He is. You want to consider how Christ loves you. He prays to His Father that you would be with Him forever. He wants you with Him. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Jesus in his posture toward us comforts us. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Saints, Jesus intercedes for us all the time. He is able. Jesus, unlike all the other priests, right, has an indestructible life. All the other priests that would intercede for the people of God through history, they died. And so their ministry stopped and there needed to be another priest. But because Jesus lives forever, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. So in your life, as you go about your moments, your hours, your days, and your weeks, know that Christ intercedes for you. He is your mediator between you and God. Always. But then, perhaps in a more pointed way, when you sin, when we sin, He is our advocate. It's one thing to think about having an intercessor in a general sense. That's incredible. But to have an advocate who will plead the merits of His blood for me, when I am in the throes of sin, not just once I've gotten over it, His scandalous love and mercy. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. This loving and merciful and kind Savior this intercessor and this advocate, He bids us to come to Him so that we might find forgiveness for our sins. He bids us to come to Him so that we might find absolution for our guilt. So that we might find righteousness. Jesus says, those who are well are in no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to offload the heavy burden of sin and guilt 
and shame. To offload the burden of needing to accomplish righteousness. He looks at you and he says, that burden that you've got there, I'll carry that. And I'll carry you. All is well. He bids that we come to Him to find freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As the words of a new song that we will probably be singing here at the church, I imagine in the coming weeks, as these words go, my song throughout eternity, my debt is paid, He set me free. No longer chained by this life of sin. He died for me, and I have life in Him. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. It's what He came to give, and He bids us come to Him. He bids us to come to Him so that we might find rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come, weary saints. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, and abide in my love. That abide in my love is Christ's encouragement, His exhortation to His disciples to remain in His love, and to dwell in His love, and to rest there. Come, guilty ones, weighed down with sin, hide away in the love of Jesus. The freedom you long for is found in Him. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Come, wandering souls, and find your home. Hide away in the love of Jesus. He offers the rest that you yearn to know. Hide away in the love of Jesus. May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we pray that you would turn the water of this preacher's efforts into wine for these dear saints. We pray that as we have considered the love of your son for us, that we would understand it. We pray that we would know it. We pray that we all the more today would rest in the love and mercy and grace and power of Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we do those things, that you would continue to work in us by your spirit as you have promised to do. Continue to transform us into the likeness of Christ. Grow us unto maturity. Stir us up by your Spirit to love each other, to love our neighbor, to flee from sin, and to pursue righteousness. We pray for your grace and for your Spirit's work in all of these things. And we pray them for Christ's sake. We thank you for Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen.